Hi everybody, Carla here, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. A couple things before I get started with today's readings. Let me please first remind you to please rate this podcast. I know there's lots of work to be done here at Carla Reads the Classics on the technical end, and those improvements will be made in the future. But if you would take the time to leave a rating uh, at this point, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, I welcome your questions, your comments, and your suggestions at Carla Reads the Classics at gmail.com. And please also remember that you can interact with the Q&A section under the episode descriptions. And now, without further delay, I give you Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. This is Book 2, October 10. Only to gaze upon her dark eyes is to me a source of happiness. And what grieves me is that Albert does not seem so happy as he hoped to be as I should have been, if I am no friend of these pauses, but here I cannot express it otherwise, and probably I am explicit enough. October 12. Ossian has superseded Homer in my heart. To what a world does the illustrious bard carry me? To wander over pathless wilds, surrounded by impetuous whirlwinds, where, by the feeble light of the moon, we see the spirits of our ancestors. To hear from the mountaintops, mid the roar of torrents, their plaintive sounds issuing from deep caverns, and the sorrowful lamentations of a maiden who sighs and expires on the mossy tomb of the warrior by whom she was adored. I met this bard with silver hair. He wanders in the valley. He seeks the footsteps of his fathers, and alas, he finds only their tombs. Then, contemplating the pale moon, as she sinks beneath the waves of the rolling sea, the memory of bygone days strikes the mind of the hero, days when approaching danger invigorated the brave, and the moon shone upon his bark laden with spoils and returning in triumph. When I read in his countenance deep sorrow, when I see his dying glory sink exhausted into the grave as he inhales new and heart-thrilling delight from his approaching union with his beloved, and he casts a look on the cold earth and the tall grass which is so soon to cover him, and then exclaims, the traveler will come, he will come who has seen my beauty, and he will ask, where is the bard, where is the illustrious son of Fingal? He will walk over my tomb and will seek me in vain. Then, O my friend, I could instantly, like a true and noble knight, draw my sword and deliver my prince from the long and painful languor of a living death and dismiss my own soul to follow the demigod whom my hand has set free. October 19. Alas, the void, the fearful void, which I feel in my bosom. Sometimes I think if I could only once, but once, press her to my heart, this dreadful void would be filled. October 26. Yes, I feel certain, Wilhelm, and every day I become more certain that the existence of any being, whatever, is of very little consequence. A friend of Charlotte's called to see her just now. I withdrew into a neighboring apartment and took up a book, but finding I could not read, I sat down to write. I heard them converse in an undertone. They spoke upon indifferent topics and retailed the news of the town. One was going to be married, another was ill, very ill. She had a dry cough, her face was growing thinner daily, and she had occasional fits. N is very unwell too, said Charlotte. His limbs begin to swell already. 
answered the other, and my lively imagination carried me at once to the beds of the affirm, of the infirm. There I see them struggling against death, with all the agonies of pain and horror, and these women, Wilhelm, talk of all this with as much indifference as one would mention the death of a stranger. And when I look around the apartment where I am now, when I see Charlotte's apparel lying before me and Albert's writings and all those articles of furniture which are so familiar to me, even to the very inkstand which I am using, when I think what I am to this family, everything, my friends esteem me, I often contribute to their happiness and my heart seems as if it could not beat without them. And yet, if I were to die, if I were to be summoned from the midst of this circle, would they feel... Or how long would they feel the void which my loss would make in their existence? How long, yes, such is the frailty of man, that even there, where he has the greatest consciousness of his own being, where he makes the strongest and most forcible impression, even in the memory and the heart of his beloved, there also he must perish, vanish, and that quickly. October 27. I could tear open my bosom with vexation to think how little we are capable of influencing the feelings of each other. No one can communicate to me those sensations of love, joy, rapture, and delight which I do not naturally possess, and though my heart may glow with the most lively affection, I cannot make the happiness of one in whom the same warmth is not inherent. October 27, Evening I possess so much, but my love for her absorbs it all. I possess so much, but without her, I have nothing. October 30. One hundred times have, have I been on the point of embracing her. Heavens, what a torment it is to see so much loveliness passing and repassing before us, and yet not dare to lay hold of it. And laying hold is the most natural of human instincts. Do not children touch everything they see? And I, November 3, witness heaven how often I lie down in my bed with a wish and even a hope that I may never awaken again. And in the morning when I open my eyes, I behold the sun once more and I am wretched. If I were whimsical, I might blame the weather or an acquaintance or some personal disappointment for my discontented mind. And then this insupportable load of trouble would not rest entirely upon myself. But alas, I feel it too sadly. I am alone the cause of my own woe, am I not? Truly, my own bosom contains the source of all my sorrow, as it previously contained the source of all my pleasure. Am I not the same being who once enjoyed an excess of happiness, who at every step saw paradise open before him, and whose heart was ever expanded toward the whole world? And this heart is now dead. No sentiment can revive it. My eyes are dry, and my senses no more refreshed by the influence of soft tears wither and consume my brain. I suffer much, for I have lost the only charm of life, that active, sacred power which created worlds around me. It is no more. When I look from my window at the distant hills and behold the morning sun breaking through the mists and illuminating the country around, which is still wrapped in silence, whilst the soft stream winds gently through the pillow, through the willows, which have shed their leaves, when glorious nature displays all her beauties before me and her wondrous prospects are ineffectual to extract one tear of joy from my withered heart, I feel that in such a moment I stand like a reprobate before heaven, hardened, insensible, and unmoved. 
Oftentimes do I then bend my knee to the earth and implore God for the blessing of tears as the desponding labor in some scorching climate prays for the dews of heaven to moisten his parched corn. But I feel that God does not grant sunshine or rain to our importune entreaties. And oh, those bygone days whose memory now torments me. Why were they so fortunate? Because I then waited with patience for the blessings of the eternal and received his gifts with the grateful feelings of a thankful heart. November 8. Charlotte has reproved me for my excesses with so much tenderness and goodness. I have lately been in the habit of drinking more wine than heretofore. Don't do it, she said. Think of Charlotte. Think of you, I answered. Need you bid me do so? Think of you. I do not think of you. You are ever before my soul. This very morning, I sat on the spot where, a few days ago, you descended from the carriage and she immediately changed the subject to prevent me from from pursuing it farther. My dear friend, my energies are all prostrated. She can do with me what she pleases. November 15. I thank you, Wilhelm, for your cordial sympathy, for your excellent advice, and I implore you to be quiet. Leave me to my sufferings. In spite of my wretchedness, I still have strength enough for endurance. I revere religion. You know I do. I feel that it can impart strength to the feeble and comfort to the afflicted, but it does not affect all men equally. Consider this vast universe. You will see thousands for whom it has never existed, thousands for whom it will never exist, whether it be preached to them or not, and must it then necessarily exist for me? Does not the Son of God himself say that they are his they are his whom the Father has given to him? Have I been given to him? What if the Father will retain me for himself, as my heart sometimes suggests? I pray you, do not misinterpret this. Do not extract extract derision from my harmless words. I pour out my whole soul before you. Silence were otherwise preferable to me, but I need not shrink from a subject of which few know more than I do myself. What is the destiny of man but to fill up the measure of his sufferings and to drink his allotted cup of bitterness? And... If that same cup proved bitter to the God of heaven under a human form, why should I affect a foolish pride and call it sweet? Why should I be ashamed of shrinking at that fearful moment when my whole being will tremble between existence and annihilation, when a remembrance of the past, like a flash of lightning, will illuminate the dark gulf of futurity, when everything shall dissolve around me and the whole world vanish away? Is not this the voice of a creature oppressed beyond all resource, self-deficient, about to plunge into inevitable destruction and groaning deeply at its inadequate strength? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And should I feel ashamed to utter the same expression? Should I not shudder at a prospect which had its fears, even for him who folds up the heavens like a garment? November 21. She does not feel, she does not know, that she is preparing a poison which will destroy us both, and I drink deeply of the drought which is to prove my destruction. What mean those looks of kindness with which she often, often, no, not often, but sometimes regards me, that complacency with which she hears the involuntary sentiments which frequently escape me, and the tender pity for my sufferings which appears in her countenance? 
Yesterday, when I took leave, she seized me by the hand and said, Adieu, dear Werther, dear Werther. It was the first time she had ever called me dear. The sound sunk deep into my heart. I have repeated it a hundred times. And last night, on going to bed and talking to myself of various things, I suddenly said, Good night, dear Werther, and then could not but laugh at myself. November 22. I cannot pray, leave her to me, and yet she often seems to belong to me. I cannot pray, give her to me, for she is another's. In this way, I affect mirth over my troubles, and if I had time, I could compose a whole litany of antithesis. November 24. She is sensible of my sufferings. This morning, her look pierced my very soul. I found her alone, and she was silent. She steadfastly surveyed me. I no longer saw in her face the charms of beauty or the fire of genius. These had disappeared, but I was affected by an expression much more touching, a look of the deepest sympathy and of the softest pity. Why was I afraid to throw myself at her feet? Why did I not dare to take her in my arms and answer her by a thousand kisses? She had recourse to her piano for relief and in a low and sweet voice accompanied the music with delicious sounds. Her lips never appeared so lovely. They seemed but just to open, that they might imbibe the sweet tones which issued from the instrument and return the heavenly vibration from her lovely mouth. Oh, who can express my sensations? I was quite overcome and, bending down, pronounced this vow. Beautiful lips with the angel's guard, never will I seek to profane your purity with a kiss. And yet, my friend, oh, I wish, but my heart is darkened by a doubt and and decision. Could I but taste felicity and then die and expiate the sin? What sin? November 26. Oftentimes I say to myself, thou alone art wretched. All other mortals are happy. None are distressed like thee. Then I read a passage in an ancient poet, and I seem to understand my own heart. I have so much to endure. Have men before me ever been so wretched? November 20. I shall never be myself again. Wherever I go, some fatality occurs to distract me. Even today, alas, for our destiny, alas, for human nature. About dinner time, I went to walk by the riverside, for I had no appetite. Everything around seemed gloomy. A cold and damp easterly wind blew from the mountains, and black heavy clouds spread over the plain. I observed at a distance a man in a tattered coat. He was wandering among the rocks and seemed to be looking for plants. When I approached, he turned around at the noise, and I saw that he had an interesting countenance in which a settled melancholy, strongly marked by benevolence, formed the principal feature. His long black hair was divided and flowed over his shoulders. As his garb betokened a person of the lower order, I thought he would not take it ill if I inquired about his business, and therefore I asked what he was seeking. He replied with a deep sigh that he was looking for flowers and could find none. But is the but is it not the season? I observed with a smile. Oh, there are so many flowers, he answered as he came nearer to me. In my garden there are roses and honeysuckles of two sorts. One sort was given me by my father. They grow as plentifully as weeds. I have been looking for them these two days and cannot find them. 
There are flowers out there, yellow, blue, and red, and that century has a very pretty blossom, but I cannot find none of them. I observed his peculiarity and therefore asked him, with an air of indifference, what he intended to do with his flowers. A strange smile overspread his countenance. Holding his finger to his mouth, he expressed a hope that I would not betray him, and then he informed me that he had promised to gather a nosegay for his mistress. That is right, said I. Oh, he replied, she possesses many other things as well. She is very rich. And yet, I continued, she likes your nosegays. Oh, she has jewels and crowns, he exclaimed. I asked who she was. If the States General would but pay me, he added, I should be quite another man. Alas, there was a time when I was so happy, but that is past, and I am now. He raised his swimming eyes to heaven. And you were once happy? I observed. Ah, what I were so still, was his reply. I was then as gay and contented as a man can be. An old woman who was coming toward us now called out, Henry, Henry, where are you? We have been looking for you everywhere. Come to dinner. Is he your son? I inquired as I went toward her. Yes, she said, he is my poor unfortunate son. The Lord has sent me a heavy affliction. I asked her whether he had been long in this, in this state. She answered, he has been as calm as he is at present for about six months. I thank heaven that he has so far recovered. He was for one whole year quite raving and chained down in a madhouse. Now he injures no one but talks of nothing else other than kings and queens. He used to be a very good quiet youth and helped to maintain me. He wrote a very fine hand. But all at once he became melancholy and seized with a, a violent fever, grew distracted, and is now as you see. If I were only to tell you, sir, I interrupted by asking what period it was in which she boasted of having been so happy. Poor boy, she exclaimed with a smile of compassion. He means the time when he was completely deranged, a time he never ceases to regret, when he was in the madhouse and unconscious of everything. I was thunderstruck. I placed a piece of money in her hand and hastened away. You were happy, I exclaimed as I returned quickly to the town, as, as, as gay and contented as a man can be. God of heaven, and is this the destiny of man? Is he only happy before he has acquired his reason or after he has lost it? Unfortunate being, and yet I envy your fate. I envy the delusion to which you are a victim. You go forth with joy to gather flowers for your princess in winter and grieve when you find none and cannot understand why they do not grow. But I wander forth without joy, without hope, without design, and I return as I came. You fancy what a man would be if, if the state general paid you, happy mortal who can ascribe your, wretched, your wretchedness to an earthly cause. You do not know, you do not feel, that in your own distracted heart and disordered brain dwells the source of that unhappiness which all the potentates of the earth cannot relieve. Let that man die unconsoled, who can deride the invalid for undertaking a journey to distant, healthful springs where he often finds only a heavier disease and a more painful death, or who can exult over the despairing mind of a sinner who, to obtain peace of conscience and an alleviation of misery, makes a pilgrimage to the holy sepulchre. 
Each laborious step which galls his wounded feet in rough and untrodden paths pours a drop of balm into his troubled soul, and the journey of many a weary day brings a nightly relief to his anguished heart. Will you dare call this enthusiasm, ye crowd of pompous declaimers? Enthusiasm, oh God, thou seest my tears. Thou hast allotted us our portion of misery. Must we also have brethren to persecute us, to deprive us of our consolation, of our trust in thee, and in thy love and mercy? For our trust in the virtue of the healing root, or in the strength of the vine, what is it else that a relief in thee from whom all the... All that surrounds us derives its healing and restoring powers. Father, whom I know not, who would once want to fill my soul, but who now hidest thy face from me, call me back to thee. Be silent no longer. Thy silence shall not delay a soul which thirsts after thee. What man, what father could be angry with the son for returning to him suddenly, for falling on his neck and exclaiming, I am here again, my father, forgive me. I have anticipated my journey and returned before the appointed time. The world is everywhere the same, a scene of labor and pain, of pleasure and reward. But what, did it, but what does it all avail? I am happy only where thou art, and in thy presence am I content to suffer or enjoy. And wouldst thou, Heavenly Father, banish such a child from thy presence? December 1 Wilhelm, the man about whom I wrote to you, that man so enviable in his misfortunes, was secretary to, Char to Charlotte's father, and an unhappy passion for her which she cherished, concealed, and at length discovered, caused him to be dismissed from his situation. This made him mad. Think, whilst you peruse this plain narration, what an impression the circumstance has made upon me. But it was related to me by Albert with as much calmness as you will probably peruse it. December 4. I implore your attention. It is all over with me. I can support this state no longer. Today, I was sitting by Charlotte. She was playing upon her piano a succession of delightful melodies with such intense expression. Her little sister was dressing her doll upon my lap. The tears came into my eyes. I leaned down and looked intently at her wedding ring. My tears fell. Immediately, she began to play that favorite, that divine air which has so often enchanted me. I felt comfort from a recollection of the past, of those bygone days when that air was familiar to me, and then I recalled all the sorrows and disappointments which I had since endured. I paced the hasty strides through the room. My heart became convulsed with painful emotions. At length, I went up to her and exclaimed with eagerness, "'For heaven's sake, play that air no longer!' She stopped and looked steadfastly at me. She then said, with a smile which sunk deep into my heart, "'Werther, you are ill. Your dearest food is distasteful to you. But go, I entreat you, and endeavor to compose yourself.' I tore myself away. God, thou seest my torments, and wilt end them. December 6. How her image haunts me. Waking or asleep, she fills my entire soul. Soon as I close my eyes here in my brain, where all the nerves of vision are concentrated, her dark eyes are imprinted. Here, I do not know how to describe it, but if I shut my eyes, hers are immediately before me. Dark as an abyss, they open upon me and absorb my senses. 
And what is man that boasted demigod? Do not his powers fail when he most requires their use? And whether he soar in joy or sink in sorrow, is not his career in both inevitably arrested? And whilst he fondly dreams that he is grasping at infinity, does he not feel compelled to return to a consciousness of his cold, monotonous existence? The Editor to the Reader It is a matter of extreme regret that we want original evidence of the last remarkable days of our friend, and we are therefore obliged to interrupt the progress of his correspondence and to supply the deficiency by a connected narration. I have felt it my duty to collect accurate information from the mouths of persons well acquainted with his history. The story is simple, and all the accounts agree, except in some unimportant particulars. It is true that, with respect to the characters of the persons spoken of, opinions and judgments vary. We have only, then, to relate conscientiously the facts which our diligent labor has enabled us to collect, to give the letters of the deceased, and to pay particular attention to the slightest fragment from his pen, more especially as it is so difficult to discover the real and correct motives of men who are not of the common order. Sorrow and discontent had taken deep root in Werther's soul, and gradually imparted their character to his whole being. The harmony of his mind became completely disturbed, a perpetual excitement and mental irritation which weakened his natural powers, produced the saddest effects upon him, and rendered him at length the victim of an exhaustion against which he struggled with still more painful efforts than he had displayed, even in contending with his other misfortunes. His mental anxiety weakened his various good qualities, and he was soon converted into a gloomy companion, always unhappy and unjust in his ideas, the more wretched he became. This was, at least, the opinion of Albert's friends. They assert, moreover, that the character of Albert himself had undergone no change in the meantime. He was still the same being whom Werther had loved, honored, and respected from the commencement. His love for Charlotte was unbounded. He was proud of her and desired that she should be recognized by every one of the noblest of, of created beings. Was he, however, to blame for wishing to avert from her every appearance of suspicion, or for his unwillingness to share his rich prize with another, even for a moment, and in the most innocent manner? It is asserted that Albert frequently retired from his wife's apartment during brother's visits, but this, but this did not arise from hatred or aversion to his friend, but only from a feeling that his presence was oppressive to Werther. Charlotte's father, who was confined to the house by indisposition, was accustomed to send his carriage for her that she might make excursions in the neighborhood. One day, the weather had been unusually severe, and the whole country was covered with snow. Werther went for Charlotte the following morning, in, that, in order that, if Albert were absent, he might conduct her home. The beautiful weather produced but little impression on his troubled spirit. A heavy weight lay upon his soul. Deep melancholy had taken possession of him, and his mind knew no change save from one painful thought to another. And he now never enjoyed internal peace. The condition of his fellow creatures was to him a perpetual source of trouble and distress. He believed he had disturbed the happiness of Albert and his wife. And whilst he censured himself strongly for this, he began to entertain a secret dislike to Albert. 
his thoughts were occasionally directed to, to this point. Yes, he would repeat to himself with ill-concealed dissatisfaction. Yes, this is, after all, the extent of that confiding, dear, tender, and sympathetic love, that calm and eternal fidelity. What do I behold but, say, but satiety and indifference? Does not every frivolous engagement attract him more than his charming and lovely wife? Does he know how to prize his happiness? Can he value her as she deserves? He possesses her, it is true, I know that, as I know much more, and I have become accustomed to the thought that he will drive me mad or perhaps murder me. Is his friendship toward me unimpaired? Does he not view my attachment to Charlotte as an infringement upon his rights and consider my attention to her as a silent rebuke to himself? I know and indeed feel that he dislikes me, that he wishes for my absence, that my presence is hateful to him. He would often pause when on his way to visit Charlotte, stand still as though in doubt, and seem desirous of returning, but would nevertheless proceed and engaged in such thoughts and soliloquies as we have described, he finally reached the hunting lodge with a sort of involuntary consent. Upon one occasion, he entered the house, and inquiring for Charlotte, he observed that the inmates were in a state of unusual confusion. The eldest boy informed him that a dreadful misfortune had occurred at Valheim, that a peasant had been murdered, but this made little impression upon him. Entering the apartment, he found Charlotte engaged, reasoning with her father, who, in spite of his infirmity, insisted on going to the scene of the crime in order to institute an inquiry. The criminal was unknown. The victim had been found dead at his own door that morning. Suspicions were excited. The murdered man had been in the service of a widow, and the person who had previously filled the situation had been dismissed from her employment. As soon as Weather heard, as soon as Further heard this, he exclaimed with great excitement, "It is possible! I must go to the spot. I cannot delay a moment." He hastened to Wilhelm. Every incident returned vividly to his remembrance, and he entertained not the slightest doubt that this man was the murder to whom he had so often spoken and to whom he had entertained so much regard. His way took him past the well-known lime trees to the house where the body had been carried, and his feelings were greatly excited at the sight of the fondly recollected spot. That threshold where the neighbor's children had so often played together was stained with blood. Love and attachment, the noblest feelings of human nature, had been converted into violence and murder. The huge tree stood there, leafless and covered with hoarfrost. The beautiful hedgerows which surrounded the old churchyard wall were withered, and the gravestones, half covered with snow, were visible through the openings. As he approached the inn, in front of which the whole village was assembled, screams were suddenly heard. A troop of armed peasants was seen approaching, and every one exclaimed that the criminal had been apprehended. Virtue looked and was not long in doubt. The prisoner was no other than the servant who had been formerly so attached to the widow, and whom he had met prowling about with that suppressed anger and ill-concealed despair which we have before described. "'What have you done, unfortunate man?' inquired Werther as he advanced toward the prisoner. The latter turned his eyes upon him in silence and then replied with perfect composure, "'No one will now marry her, and she will marry no one.' 
The prisoner was taken into the inn and Werther left the place. The mind of Werther was fearfully excited by this shocking occurrence. He ceased, however, to be oppressed by his usual feeling of melancholy, moroseness, and indifference to everything that passed around him. He entertained a strong degree of pity for the prisoner and was seized with an indescribable anxiety to save him from his impending fate. He considered him so unfortunate, he deemed his crime so excusable, and thought his own condition so nearly similar that he felt convinced he could make everyone else view the matter in the light in which he saw it himself. He now became anxious to undertake his defense and commenced composing an eloquent speech for the occasion, and on his way to the hunting lodge he could not refrain from speaking aloud the statement which he resolved to make to the judge. Upon his arrival, he found Albert had been before him, and he was a little perplexed by this meeting, but he soon recovered himself and expressed his opinion with much warmth to the judge. The latter shook his head doubtingly, and although Werther urged his case with utmost zeal, feeling, and determination in defense of his client, yet... As we may easily suppose, the judge was not much influenced by his appeal. On the contrary, he interrupted him in his address, reasoned with him seriously, and even administered a rebuke to him for becoming the advocate of a murderer. He demonstrated that, according to this precedent, every law might be violated and the public security utterly destroyed. He added, moreover, that in such a case he could himself do nothing without incurring the greatest responsibility, that everything must follow in the usual course and pursue the ordinary channel. Werther, however, did not abandon his enterprise and even besought the judge to connive at the flight of the prisoner, but this proposal was preemptorily rejected. Albert, who had taken some part in the discussion, coincided in opinion with the judge. At this, Werther became enraged and took his leave in great anger after the judge had more than once assured him that the prisoner could not be saved. The excess of his grief at this assurance may be inferred from a note we have found amongst his papers and which was doubtless written upon this very occasion. You cannot be saved, unfortunate man. I see clearly that we cannot be saved. Virtue was highly incensed at the observations which Albert had made to the judge in this matter of the prisoner. He thought he could detect therein a little bitterness toward himself personally, and although, upon reflection, it could not escape his sound judgment that their view of the matter was correct, he felt the greatest possible reluctance to make such an admission. A memorandum of Virta's upon this point, expressive of his general feelings toward Albert, has been found amongst his papers. What is the use of my continually repeating that he is a good and estimable man? He is an inward torment to me, and I am capable of being just toward him. One fine evening in winter, when the weather seemed inclined to thaw, Charlotte and Albert were returning home together. The former looked from time to time about her as if she missed Virta's company. Albert began to speak of him and censured him for his prejudices. He alluded to his unfortunate attachment and wished it were possible to discontinue his acquaintance. I desire it on our own account, he added, and I request you will compel him to alter his deportment towards you and to visit you less frequently. The world is censorious and I know that here and there we are spoken of. Charlotte made no reply, and Albert seemed to feel her silence. 
at least from from that time, he never again spoke of Werther. And when she introduced the subject, he allowed the conversation to die away, or else he directed the discourse into another channel. The vain attempt Werther had made to save the unhappy murderer was the last feeble, feeble glimmering of a flame about to be extinguished. He sank almost immediately afterwards into a state of gloom and inactivity until he was at length brought to perfect distraction by learning that he was to be summoned as a witness against the prisoner who asserted his complete innocence. His mind now became oppressed by the recollection of every misfortune, misfortune of his past life, the mortification he had suffered at the ambassadors and his subsequent troubles were revived in his memory. He became utterly inactive. Destitute of energy, he was cut off from every pursuit and occupation which composed the business of common life, and he became a victim to his own susceptibility and to his restless passion for the most amiable and beloved of women whose peace he destroyed. In this unvarying monotony of existence, his days were consumed and his powers became exhausted without aim or design until they brought him to a sorrowful end. A few letters which he left behind and which we here subjoin afford the best proofs of his anxiety of mind and the depth of his passion, as well as his doubts and struggles and the weariness of his life. December 12. Dear Wilhelm, I am reduced to the condition to the condition of those unfortunate wretches who, wretches who believe they are pursued by an evil spirit. Sometimes I am oppressed, not by apprehension or fear, but by an inexpressible internal sensation which weighs upon my heart and impedes my breath. Then I wander forth at night, even in this tempestuous season, and feel pleasure in surveying the dreadful scenes around me. Yesterday evening I went forth. A rapid thaw had suddenly set in. I had been informed that the river had risen, that the brooks had all overflowed their banks, and that the whole vale of Walheim was under water. Upon the stroke of twelve I hastened forth. I beheld a fearful sight. The foaming torrents rolled from the mountains in the moonlight. Fields and meadows, trees and hedges were confounded together, and the entire valley was covered into a deep lake, which was agitated by the roaring wind. And when the moon shone forth and tinged the black clouds with silver, and the impetuous torrent at my feet foamed and resounded with awful and grand impetuosity, I was overcome by a mingled sensation of apprehension and delight. With extended arms, I looked down into the yawning abyss and cried, Plunge! From the moment my senses forsook me, in the intense delight of ending my sorrows and my sufferings by a plunge into the gulf, and then I felt as if I were rooted to the earth and incapable of seeking an end to my woes. But my hour is not yet come. I feel it is not. Oh, Wilhelm, how willingly could I ab abandon my existence to ride the whirlwind or to embrace the torrent, and then might not rapture perchance be the portion of this liberated soul? I turned, to my I turned my sorrowful eyes toward a favorite spot where I was accustomed to sit with Charlotte beneath a willow after, after a fatiguing walk. Alas, it was covered with water, and with difficulty I found even the meadow, and the fields around the hunting lodge, thought I. Has our dear bower been destroyed by this unpitying storm? 
and the beam of past happiness streamed upon me and the mind of a captive is as a, as the mind of a captive is illuminated by dreams of flocks and herds and bygone and bygone joys of home but i am free from blame I have courage to die. Perhaps I have, but I still sit here like a wretched pauper who collects faggots and begs her bread from door to door that she may prolong for a few days a miserable existence which she is unwilling to resign. December 15. What is the matter with me, dear Wilhelm? I am afraid of myself. It is not my love for her of the pure is not my love for her of the purest, most holy, and most brotherly nature? Has my soul ever been sullied by a single sensual desire? But I will make no protestations, and now, ye nightly visions, how truly have those mortals understood you who ascribe your various contradictory effects to some invincible power? This night I tremble at the avowal. I held her in my arms, locked in a close embrace. I pressed her to my bosom and covered with countless kisses those dear lips which murmured in reply soft protestations of love. My sight became confused by the delicious intoxication of her eyes. Heavens, is it sinful to reveal again, to revel again in such happiness, to recall once more those rapturous moments with intense delight? Charlotte, Charlotte, I am lost. My senses are bewildered, my recollection is confused. Mine eyes are bathed in tears. I am ill, and yet I am well. I wish for nothing. I have no desires. It were better I were gone. Under the circumstances narrated above, a determination to quit this world had now taken fixed possession of Virtue's soul. Since Charlotte's return, this thought had been the final object of all his hopes and wishes, but he had resolved that such a step should not be taken with precipitation, but with calmness and tranquility and with the most perfect deliberation. His troubles and internal struggles may be understood from the following fragment, which was found without any date amongst his papers and appears to have formed the beginning of a letter to Wilhelm. Her presence, her fate, her sympathy for me have power still to extract tears from my withered brain. One lifts up the curtain and passes to the other side. That is all. And why all these doubts and delays? Because we know not what is behind, because there is no returning, and because our mind infers that all is darkness and confusion, where we have nothing but uncertainty. His appearance at length became quite altered by the effect of his melancholy thoughts, and his resolution was now finally and irrevocably taken, of which the following ambiguous letter which he addressed to his friend may appear to afford some proof. December 20. I am grateful for your love, Wilhelm, for having repeated your advice so seasonably. Yes, you are right. It is undoubtedly better that I should depart. But I do not entirely approve of your scheme of returning at once to your neighborhood. At least, I should like to make a little excursion on the way, particularly as we may now expect a continued frost and consequently good roads. I am much pleased with your intention of coming to fetch me. Only delay your journey for a fortnight and wait for another letter from me. One should gather nothing before it is ripe, and a fortnight sooner or later makes a great difference. Entreat my mother to pray for her son, and tell her I beg her pardon for all the unhappiness I have occasioned her. It has ever been my fate to give it has ever been my fate to give pain to those whose happiness I should have promoted. Adieu, my dearest friend. May every blessing of heaven attend you. Farewell. 
We find it difficult to express the emotions with which Charlotte's soul was agitated during the whole of this time, whether in relation to her husband or to her unfortunate friend, although we are enabled by our knowledge of her character to understand their nature. It is certain that she had formed a determination by every means in her power to keep Werther at a distance, and if she hesitated in her decision, it was from a it was from a sincere feeling of friendly pity, knowing how much it would cost him indeed that he would find it almost impossible to comply with her wishes. But various causes now urged her to be firm. Her husband preserved a strict silence about the whole matter, and she never made it a subject of conversation, feeling bound to prove to him by her conduct that her sentiments agreed with his. The same day, which was the Saturday before Christmas, after Werther had written the last mentioned letter to his friend, he came in the evening to Charlotte's house and found her alone. She was busy preparing some little gifts for her brothers and sisters, which were to be distributed to them on Christmas Day. He began talking of the delight of the children and of that age when the sudden appearance of the Christmas tree decorated with fruit and sweet meats and lighted up with wax candles causes such transport of joy. You shall have a gift too if you behave well, said Charlotte, hiding her embarrassment under a sweet smile. And what do you call behaving well? What should I do? What can I do, my dear Charlotte, said he. Thursday night, she answered, is Christmas Eve. The children are all to be here, and my father too. There is a present for each. Do you come likewise, but do you come before that time? Werther started. I desire you will not it must be so, she continued. I ask it of you as a favor of my own peace and tranquility. We cannot go in this manner any longer. He turned away his face. He turned away his face, walked hastily up and down the room, muttering indistinctly, We cannot go on in this manner any longer. Charlotte, seeing the violent agitation into which these words had thrown him, endeavored to divert his thoughts by different questions, but in vain. No, Charlotte, he exclaimed. I will never see you any more. And why so? She answered. We may, we must see each other again. Only let it be with more discretion. Oh, why were you born with that excessive and ungovernable passion for everything that is dear to you? Then taking his hand, she said, I entreat of you to be more calm. Your talents, your understanding, your genius will furnish you with a thousand resources. Be a man and conquer an unhappy attachment toward a creature who can do nothing but pity you. He bit his lips and looked at her with a gloomy countenance. She continued to hold his hand. Grant me but a moment's patience, Berta, she said. Do you not see that you are deceiving yourself, that you are seeking your own destruction? Why must you love me, me only, who belong to another? I fear, I much fear, that it is only the impossibility of possessing me which makes you desire for me so strong. He drew back his hand, whilst he surveyed her with a wild and angry look. "'Tis well," he exclaimed, "'tis very well. Did not Albert furnish you with this reflection? It is profound, a very profound remark." A reflection that any one might easily make, she answered. And is there not a woman in the whole world who is at liberty and has the power to make you happy? 
Conquer yourself. Look for such a being and believe me when I say that you will certainly find her. I have long felt for you and for us all. You have confined yourself too long within the limits of too narrow a circle. Conquer yourself. Make an effort. A short journey will be of service to you. Seek and find an object worthy of your love. Then return hither and let us enjoy together all the happiness of the most perfect friendship. This speech replied Virta with a cold smile. This speech should be imprinted for the benefit of all teachers. My dear Charlotte, allow me but a short time longer and all will be well. But however, Virta, she added, do not come again before Christmas. He was about to make some answer when Albert came in. They saluted each other coldly and with mutual embarrassment paced up and down the room. Virta made some common remarks. Albert did the same and their conversation soon dropped. Albert asked his wife about some household matters, and finding that his commissions were not executed, he used some expressions which, to Virta's ear, savored of extreme harshness. He wished to go, but had not power to move, and in this situation he remained till eight o'clock, his uneasiness and discontent continually increasing. At length, the cloth was laid for supper, and he took up his hat and stick. Albert invited him to remain, but Werther, fancying that he was merely paying a formal compliment, thanked him coldly and left the house. Werther returned home, took the candle from his servant, and retired to his room alone. He talked for some time with great earnestness to himself, wept aloud, walked in a state of great excitement through his chamber, till at length, without undressing, he threw himself on the bed where he was found by his servant at eleven o'clock. When the latter ventured to enter the room and take off his boots, Virta did not prevent him, but forbade him to come in the morning till he should ring. On Monday morning, the 21st of December, he wrote to Charlotte the following letter, which was found sealed on his bureau after his death and was given to her. I shall insert it in fragments as it appears from several circumstances to have been written in that manner. It is all over, Charlotte. I am resolved to die. I make this declaration deliberately and coolly without any romantic passion on this morning of the day when I am to see you for the last time. At the moment you read these lines, O oh best of women, the cold grave will hold the inanimate remains of that restless and, and unhappy being who, in the last moments of his, of his existence, knew no pleasure so great as that of conversing with you. I have passed a dreadful night, or rather, let me say, a precipitous one, for it has given me resolution. It has fixed my purpose. I am resolved to die. When I tore myself from you yesterday, my senses were in tumult and disorder. My heart was oppressed. Hope and pleasure had fled from me forever, and a petrifying cold had seized my wretched being. I could scarcely reach my room. I threw myself on my knees, and heaven for the last time granted me the consolation of shedding tears. A thousand ideas, a thousand schemes arose in my soul, till at length one last fixed final thought took possession of my heart. It was to die. I lay down to rest, and in the morning, in the quiet hour of wakening, the same determination was upon me, to die. It is not despair, it is conviction that I have filled up the measure of my sufferings, that I have reached my appointed term and must sacrifice myself for thee. Yes, Charlotte, why should I not avow it? One of us three must die. It shall be Werther. Oh, beloved Charlotte, this heart, excited by rage and fury, has often conceived the horrid idea of murdering your husband, you, myself. 
the lot is cast at length. And in the bright, quiet evenings of summer, when you sometimes wander toward the mountains, let your thoughts then turn to me. Recollect how often you have watched me coming to meet you from the valley. Then bend your eyes upon the churchyard which contains my grave, and by the light of the setting sun, mark how the evening breeze waves the tall grass which grows above my tomb. I was calm when I began this letter, but the recollection of these scenes makes me weep like a child. About ten in the morning, Werther called his servant, and whilst he was dressing, told him that in a few days he intended to set out upon a journey, and bade him therefore lay his clothes in order and prepare them for packing up, call in all his accounts, fetch home the books he had lent, and give two months' pay to the poor dependents who were accustomed to receive from him a weekly allowance. He breakfasted in his room, and then mounted his horse, and went to visit the steward, who, however, was not at home. He walked pensively in the garden, and seemed anxious to renew all the ideas that were the most painful to him. The children did not suffer him to remain alone long. They followed him, skipping and dancing before him, and told him that after tomorrow, and tomorrow, and one day more, they were to receive their Christmas gift from Charlotte, and they then recounted all the wonders of which they had formed ideas in their child imaginations. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, said he, and one day more, and he kissed them tenderly. He was going, but the younger boy stopped him to whisper something in his ear. He told him that his elder brothers had written splendid New Year's wishes so large, one for Papa and another for Albert and Charlotte and one for Werther, and they were to be presented early in the morning on New Year's Day. This quite overcame him. He made each of the children a present, mounted his horse, left his compliments for Papa and Mama, and with tears in his eyes rode away from the place. He returned about five o'clock, ordered his servant to keep up his fire, desired him to pack his books and linen at the bottom of the trunk, and to place his coats at the top. He then appears to have made the following addition to the letter addressed to Charlotte. You do not expect me. You think I will obey you and not visit you again till Christmas Eve. Oh, Charlotte, today or never, on Christmas Eve you will hold this paper in your hand. You will tremble and moisten it with your tears. I will, I must, oh, how happy I feel to be determined. In the meantime, Charlotte, in the meantime, Charlotte was in a pitiable state of mind. After her last conversation with Verta, she found how painful to herself it would be to decline his visits, and she knew how severely he would suffer from their separation. She had, in conversation with Albert, mentioned casually that Verta would not return before Christmas Eve, and soon afterward Albert went on horseback to see a person in the neighborhood with whom he had to transact some business which would detain him all night. Charlotte was sitting alone. None of her family were near, and she gave herself up to the reflections that silently took possession of her mind. She was forever united to a husband whose love and fidelity she had proved, to whom she was heartily devoted, and who seemed to be a special gift from heaven to ensure her happiness. On the other hand, Virgil had become dear to her. There was a cordial unanimity of sentiment between them from the very first hour of their acquaintance, and their long association had 
and repeated interviews had made an indelible impression upon her heart. She had been accustomed to communicate to him every thought and feeling which interested her, and his absence threatened to open a void in her existence which it might be impossible to fill. How heartily she wished that she might change him into her brother, that she could induce him to marry one of her own friends, or could re-establish his intimacy with Albert. She passed all her intimate friends in review before her mind, but found something objectionable in each, and could decide upon none to whom she would consent to give him. Amid all these considerations, she felt deeply but indistinctly that her own real but unexpressed wish was to retain him for herself, and her pure and amiable heart felt from this thought a sense of oppression which seemed to forbid a prospect of happiness. She was wretched. A dark cloud obscured her mental vision." It was now half-past six o'clock, and she heard Verta's steps on the stairs. She at once recognized his voice as he inquired if she were at home. Her heart beat audibly. We could almost say for the first time at his arrival. It was too late to deny herself, and as he entered, she exclaimed with a sort of ill-concealed confusion, "'You have not kept your word.' "'I promised nothing.' he answered, but you should have complied at least for my sake, she continued. I implore you for both our sakes. She scarcely knew what she said or did and sent for some friends who by their presence might prevent her being left alone with Werther. He put down some books and he put down some books he had brought with him, then made inquiries about some others until she began to hope that her friends might arrive shortly, entertaining at the same time a desire that they might stay away. At one moment, she felt anxious that the servant should remain in the adjoining room. Then she changed her mind. Verta, meanwhile, walked impatiently up and down. She went to the piano and determined not to retire. She then collected her thoughts and sat down quietly at Verta's side, who had taken his usual place on the sofa. "'Have you brought nothing to read?' she inquired. "'He had nothing.' There, in my drawer, she continued, you will find your own translation of some of the songs of Ossian. I have not yet read them, as I have still hoped to hear you recite them, but for some time past I have not been able to accomplish such a wish. He smiled and went for the manuscript, which he took with a shudder. He sat down and, with eyes full of, tear of tears, began to read. Star of descending night, fair is thy light in the west. Thou liftest my unshorn head from my cloud. Thy steps are stately on my hill. What dost thou behold in the plain? The stormy winds are laid. The murmur of the torrent comes from afar. Roaring waves climb the distant rock. The flies of evening are on their feeble wings. The hum of their course is on the field. What dost thou behold, fair light? But thou dost smile and depart. The waves come with joy around thee. They bathe thy lovely hair. Farewell, thou silent beam. Let the light of Ossian's soul arise. And it does arise in its strength. I behold my departed friends. Their gathering is on Laura, as in the days of other years. Fingal comes like a watery column of mist. His heroes are around and see the bards of song. Gray-haired, ullen, state, stately rhino, alpen with the tuneful voice. The soft complaint of Mimona. How are ye changed, my friends, since the days of Selma's feast? When we contented like gales of spring as they fly along the hill and bend by turns the feebly whistling grass. 
Minona came forth in her beauty with downcast look and tearful eye. Her hair was flying softly with the blast that rushed unfrequent from the hill. The souls of the heroes were sad when she raised the tuneful voice. Oft had they seen the grave of Salgar, the dark dwelling of white-bosomed Kalma. Kalma left alone on the hill with all her voice of song. Salgar promised to come, but the night descended around. Hear the voice of Kalma when she sat alone on the hill. Kalma, it is night. I am alone, forlorn on the hill of storms. The wind is heard on the mountain. The torrent is howling down the rock. No hut receives me from the rain, forlorn on the hill of winds. Rise, moon, from behind thy clouds. Stars of the night, arise, lead me some light to the place where my love rests for the chase alone. His bow near, his bow near him unstrung, his dogs panting around him. But here I must sit alone by the rock of the mossy stream. The stream and the wind roar aloud. I hear not the voice of my love. Why delays my Salgar? Why the chief of the hill his promise? Here is the rock and here is the tree. Here is the, ro here is the roaring stream. Thou didst promise with night to be here. Ah, whither is my Salgar gone? With thee I would fly from my father, with thee from my brother of pride. Our race have long been foes. We are not foes, O Salgar. Cease a little while, O wind, stream. Be thou silent a while. Let my voice be heard around. Let the wanderer hear me again. Salgar, it is Colma who calls. Here is the tree and the rock. Salgar, my love, I am here. Why delayest thou thy coming? Lo, the, the calm moon comes forth. The flood is bright in the vale. The rocks are gray on the steep. I am, I am him not on the brow. His dogs come not before him with tidings of his near approach. Here I must sit alone. Who lie on the heath beside me? Are they my love and my brother? Speak to me, O oh my friends. To Colma, they give no reply. Speak to me, I am alone. My soul is tormented with fears. Ah, they are dead. Their swords are red from the fight. O oh, my brother, my brother, why hast thou slain my Salgar? Why, O oh Salgar, hast thou slain my brother? Dear, were ye both to me? What shall I say in your praise? Thou wert fair on the hill among thousands. He was terrible in fight. Speak to me, hear my voice. Hear me, sons of my love. They are silent, silent forever. Cold, cold are the breasts of clay. Oh, from the rock on the hill, from the top of the windy steep, speak, ye ghosts of the dead. Speak, I will not be afraid, whither, ye, whither are ye gone to rest? In what cave of the hill shall I find the departed? No feeble voices on the gale, no answer half drowned in the storm. I sit in my grief, I wait for morning in my tears. Rear the tomb, ye friends of the dead, close it not till Colma come. My life flies away like a dream. Why should I stay behind? Here shall I rest with my friends by the stream of the sounding rock. When night comes on the hill, when the loud winds arise, my ghost shall stand in the blast and mourn the death of my friends. The hunter shall hear from his booth. He shall fear, but love my voice, for fear shall have, for fear, for sweet shall my voice be for my friends. Pleasant were her friends to Coma. Such was thy song, Mimona, softly brushing daughter of Troll of Torment. Our tears descended for Coma, and our souls were sad. Yulin came with his harp. 
He gave the song of Alpin. The voice of Alpin was pleasant. The soul of Rhino was a beam of fire. But they had rested in the narrow house. Their voice had ceased in Selma. Ulan had returned one day from the chase before the heroes fell. He heard their strife on the hill. Their song was soft but sad. They mourned the fall of Momar for the mortal men. His soul was like the soul of Fingal, his sword like the sword of Oscar. But he fell, and his father mourned. His sister's eyes were full of tears. Minona's eyes were full of tears, the sister of Carborn, Morar. She retired from the song of Ulan like the moon in the west, when she foresees the shower and hides her fair head in a cloud. I touched the heart with Ulan, the song of Morning Rose. Rhino, the wind and the rain are past. Calm is the noon of day. The clouds are divided in heaven. Over the green hills flies the inconstant sun. Red through the stony veil comes down the stream of the hill. Sweet are thy, are thy murmurs, O stream, but more sweet is the voice I hear. It is the voice of Alpin, the son of song, mourning for the dead. Bent is his head, bent is his head of age, red his tearful eye. Alpin, thou song of thou son of song, why alone on the silent hill? Why complainest thou as a blast in the wood, as a wave on the lonely shore? Alpin, my tears, O rhino, are for the dead, my voice for those that have passed away. Tall thou art on the hill, fair among the sons of Baal. But thou shalt fall like Morar, the mourner shall sit by the tomb. The hill shall know thee no more, thy bow shall lie in thy hall unstrung. Thou wert swift, O Morar, as a roe on the desert, terrible as a meteor of fire. Thy wrath was as the storm, thy sword in battle as lightning in the field. Thy voice was as a stream after rain, like thunder on distant hills. Many fell by the arm, they were consumed in flames of thy wrath. But when thou didst return from war, how peaceful was thy brow! Thy face was like the sun after rain, like the moon in the silence of night, calm as the breast of the lake when the cloud wind is laid. Narrow is thy dwelling now, dark the place of thine abode. With three steps I compass thy grave, O thou who was so great before, four stones with the heads of moss are the only memorial of thee. A tree with, with scarce a leaf, long grass which whistles in the wind, marked to the hunter's eye the grave of the mighty Morar. Morar, thou art out low indeed, thou hast no mother to mourn thee, no maid with her tears of love. Dead is she that brought thee forth. Fallen is the daughter of Morglen. Who on his staff is this? Who, who is this whose head is white with age, whose eyes are red with tears, who quakes at every step? It is thy father, Ormorar, the father of no son but thee. He heard of thy fame in war. He heard of foes dispersed. He heard of Morar's renown. Why did he not hear of his wound? Weep, thou father of Morar, weep, but thy son heareth thee not. Deep is the sleep of the dead, low their pillow of dust. No more shall he, shall he hear thy voice, no more awake at thy call. When shall it be morn in the grave to bid the slumberer awake? Farewell, thou bravest of men, thou conquer in the field, but the field shall see thee no more, nor the dark wood be lightened with the splendor of thy steel. Thou hast left no son, the song shall preserve thy name. Future times shall hear of thee, they shall hear of the fallen Morar. 
The grief of all arose, but most the bursting sigh of Armin. He remembers the death of his son, who fell in the days of his youth. Carmor was near the hero, the chief of the echoing Galmal. Why burst the sigh of Armin, he said. Is there a cause to mourn? The song comes with this music to melt and please the soul. It is like soft mist that, rising from the lake, pours on the silent vale. The green flowers are filled with dew. But the sun returns in its strength, and the mist is gone. Why art thou sad, O Armin, chief of sea surrounding Gorma? Sad I am, nor small is my cause of woe. Carmor, thou hast lost no son, thou hast lost no daughter of beauty. Kolgar, the valiant lives of Anira, fairest maid. The boughs of thy house ascend, O Carmor, but Armin is the last of his race. Dark is thy bed, O Dura, deep thy sleep in the tomb. When shalt thou wake with thy songs, with all thy voice of music? Arise, winds of autumn, arise, blow along the heath. Streams of the mountains roar, roar tempests in the groves of my oaks. Walk through broken clouds, O moon, show thy pale face at intervals. Bring to my mind the night when all my children fell, when Arundel the mighty fell, when Dora the lovely failed. Dora, my daughter, thou wert fair, fair as the moon on Fura, white as the driven snow, sweet as the breathing gale. Arendelle, thou bow was, thy bow was strong, thy spear was swift on the field, thy look was like mist on the wave, thy shield a red cloud in a storm. Armar, renowned, renowned in war, came and sought Dora's love. He was not long refused, fair was the hope of their friends. Erath, son of Ogdal, repined, his brother had been slain by Armar. He came disguised like a son of the sea. Fair was his clip of the wave, white his locks of rage, calm his serious brow. Fairest of women, he said, lovely daughter of Armin, a rock not distant in the sea, bears a tree on its side. Red shines the fruit afar. There Amar waits for Dora. I come to carry his love. She went, she went, she called on Armar, not answered but the son of the rock. Armar, my love, my love, why torments thou me with fear? Here, son of Arnat, here, it is Dora who calleth thee. Irath, the traitor, fled laughing to the land. She lifted up her voice, called for her brother and her father. Arundel, Armin, none to relieve you, Dora. Her voice came over the sea. Arundel, my son, descended from the hill, rough in the spoils of the chase. His arrows rattled by his side, his, his bow was in his hand. Five dark gray dogs attended his steps. He saw fierce Erath on the shore. He seized and bound him to an oak. Thick wind, thick wind, the thongs of the hide around his limbs. He loads the winds with his groans. Arundel ascends the deep in his boat to bring Dora to land. Armin came in his wrath and let fly the gray feathered shaft. It sung, it sunk in thy heart, O Arundel, my son, for Aerith the traitor thou diest. The oar is stopped at once, he panted on the rock and expired. What is thy grief, O Dora, when round thy feet is poured thy brother's blood? The boat is broken in twain. Armar plunges into the sea to rescue his Dora or die. Sudden a blast from a hill came over the waves. He sank and he rose no more.
Alone on the sea-beat rock, my daughter was heard to complain. Frequent and loud were her cries. What could her father do? All night I stood on the shore. I saw her by the faint beam of the moon. All night I heard her cries. Loud was the wind. The rain beat hard on the hill. Before morning appeared, her voice was weak. It died away like the evening breeze among the grass of the rocks. Spent with grief, she expired and left thee, Armin, alone. Gone is my strength in war, fallen my pride among women. When the storms arose, when the storms aloft arise, when the north lifts the wave on high, I sit by the sounding shore and look on the fatal rock. Often by the setting moon I see the ghosts of my children, half viewless they walk in mournful conference together. A torrent of tears which streamed from Charlotte's eyes and gave relief to her bursting heart stopped Werther's recitation. He threw down the book, seized her hand, and wept bitterly. Charlotte leaned upon her hand and buried her face in her handkerchief. The agitation of both was excessive. They felt that their own fate was pictured in the misfortunes of Ossian's heroes. They felt this together, and their tears redoubled. Virtue supported his forehead on Charlotte's arm. She trembled. She wished to be gone, but sorrow and sympathy lay like a leaden weight upon her soul. She recovered herself shortly and begged Virtue with broken sobs to leave her, implored him with the utmost earnestness to comply with her request. He trembled. His heart was ready to burst. Then, taking up the book again, he, recomm- he recommenced reading in a voice broken by sobs. Why dost thou waken me, O spring? Thy voice woos me, exclaiming, I refresh thee with heavenly dews. But the time of my decay is approaching. The storm is nigh that shall wither my leaves. Tomorrow the traveler shall come. He shall come, who beheld me in beauty. His eyes shall seek me in the field around, but he shall not find me. The whole force of these words fell upon unfortunate Werther. Full of despair, he threw himself at Charlotte's feet, seized her hands and pressed them to his eyes and to his forehead. An apprehension of his fatal project now struck for her the first time. Her senses were bewildered. She held his hands, pressed them to her bosom, and leaning forward and leaning toward him with emotions of the tenderest pity, her warm cheek touched his. They lost sight of everything. The world disappeared from their eyes. He clasped her arms in his, strained her to his bosom, and covered her trembling lips with passionate kisses. Werther, she cried with a faint voice, turning herself away. Werther! And with a feeble hand, she pushed him from her. At length, with the firm voice of virtue, she exclaimed, Werther! He resisted not, but tearing himself from her arms, fell on his knees before her. Charlotte rose, and with disordered grief and mingled tones of love and resentment, she exclaimed, It is the last time, Bertha, you shall, you shall never see me any more. Then, casting one last tender look upon her unfortunate lover, she rushed into the adjoining room and locked the door. Bertha held out his arms, but did not dare to detain her. He continued on the ground, with his head resting on the sofa for half an hour, till he heard a noise which brought him to his senses. The servant entered. He then walked up and down the room, and when he was again left alone, he went to Charlotte's door, and, in a low voice, said, "'Charlotte, Charlotte, but one once more, one word more, one last to do.' She returned no answer. He stopped and listened and entreated, 
but all was silent. At length he tore himself from the place, crying, Adieu, Charlotte, adieu forever. Werther ran to the gate of the town. The guards who knew him let him pass in silence. The night was dark and stormy. It rained and snowed. He reached his own door about eleven. His servant, although seeing him enter the house without his hat, did not venture to say anything, and as he undressed his master, he found that his clothes were wet. His hat was afterward found on the point of a rock overhanging the valley, and it is inconceivable how he could have climbed to the summit on such a dark, tempestuous night without losing his life. He retired to bed and slept to, and slept to a late hour. The next morning, his servant, upon being called to bring his coffee, found him writing. He was adding to Charlotte what we hear annex. For the last time, I opened these eyes. Alas, they will behold the sun no more. It is covered by a thick, impenetrable cloud. Yes, nature put on mourning. Your child, your friend, your lover draws near his end. This thought, Charlotte, is without parallel, and yet it seems like a mysterious dream when I repeat... This is my last day, the last. Charlotte, no word can adequately express this thought. The last, today. I stand erect in all my strength tomorrow, cold and stark. I shall lie extended upon the ground. To die, what is death? We do but dream in our discourse upon it. I have seen many human beings die, but so straitened is our feeble nature, we have no clear conception of the beginning or the end of our existence. At this moment, I am my own, or rather, I am thine, thine, my adored, and the next we are parted, severed, perhaps forever. No, Charlotte, no. How can I, how can you be annihilated? We exist. What is annihilation? A mere word, an unmeaning sound that affixes no impression on the mind. Dead, Charlotte, laid in the cold earth, in the dark and narrow grave. I had a friend once who was everything to me in early youth. She died. I followed her hearse. I stood by her grave when the coffin was lowered, and when I heard the creaking of the cords as they were loosened and drawn up, when the first shovelful of earth was thrown in, and the coffin returned a hollow sound, which grew fainter and fainter till all was completely covered over, I threw myself on the ground. My heart was smitten, grieved, shattered, rent, but I neither knew what had happened nor what was to happen to me. Death, the grave, I understand, not the words. Forgive, oh, forgive me. Yesterday, ah, that day should have been the last of my life, thou angel. For the first time in my existence, I felt rapture glow within my inmost soul. She loves, she loves me. Still burns upon my lips the sacred fire they receive from thine. New torments of delight overwhelm my soul. Forgive me, oh, forgive. I knew that I was dear to you. I saw it in your first entrancing look, knew it by the first pressure of your hand. But when I was absent from you, when I saw Albert at your side, my doubts and fears returned. Do you remember the flowers you sent me when, at that crowded assembly, you could neither speak nor extend your hand to me? Half the night I was on my knees before those flowers, and I regarded them as the pledges of your love. 
but those impressions grew fainter and were at length affected, effaced. Everything passes away, but a whole eternity could not extinguish the living flame which was yesterday kindled by your lips and which now burns within me. She loves me. These arms have encircled her waist. These lips have trembled upon her. She is mine. Yes, Charlotte, you are mine forever. And what do they mean by saying Albert is your husband? He may be so for this world, and in this world it is a sin to love you, to wish to tear you from his embrace. Yes, it is a crime, and I suffer the punishment, but I have enjoyed the full delight of my sin. I have inhaled a balm that has revived my soul. From this hour you are mine. Yes, Charlotte, you are mine. I go before you. I go to my father and to your father, and I will pour out my sorrows before him, and he will give me comfort till you arrive. Then will I fly to meet you. I will claim you and remain your eternal embrace in the presence of the Almighty. I do not dream, I do not rave. Drawing nearer to the grave, my perceptions become clearer. What shall exist? We shall see each other again. We shall behold your mother. I shall behold her and expose to her my inmost heart, your mother, your image. About eleven o'clock, Werther asked his servant if Albert had returned. He answered yes, for he had seen him pass on horseback, upon which Werther sent him the following note, unsealed. Be so good as to lend me your pistols for a journey. Adieu. Charlotte had slept little during the past night. All her apprehensions were realized in a way that she could not that she could neither foresee nor avoid. Her blood was boiling in her veins, and a thousand painful sensations rent her pure heart. Was it the ardor of Virtus' passionate embraces that she felt within her bosom? Was it anger at his daring? Was it the sad comparison of her present condition with former days of innocence, tranquility, and self-confidence? How could she approach her husband and confess a scene which she had no reason to conceal, and which she yet felt nevertheless unwilling to avow? They had, pre they had preserved so long a silence toward each other, and should she be the first to break it by so unexpected a discovery? She feared that the mere statement of Virch's visit would trouble him, and his distress would be heightened by her perfect candor. She wished that he could see her in her true light and judge her without prejudice, but she was anxious that he should read to her inmost soul. On the other hand, could she deceive a being whom all her thoughts had ever been exposed as clearly as crystal and from whom no sentiment had ever been concealed? These reflections made her anxious and thoughtful. Her mind still dwelt on Werther, who was now lost to her, but whom she could not bring herself to resign, and for whom she knew nothing was left but despair if she could be lost to him forever. A recollection of that mysterious estrangement which had lately subsisted between herself and Albert, and which she could never thoroughly understand, was now beyond measure painful to her. Even the prudent and the good have before now hesitated to explain their mutual differences and have dwelt in silence upon their imaginary grievances until circumstances have become so entangled that in critical juncture with a calm explanation would have saved all parties and understanding was impossible. And thus, if domestic confidence had been earlier established between them, if love and kind forbearance had mutually animated and expanded their hearts, it might not, perhaps, even yet have been too late to save our friend. 
But we must not forget one remarkable circumstance. We may observe from the character of Virtue's correspondence that he had never affected to conceal his anxious desire to quit this world. He had often discussed the subject with Albert, and between the latter and Charlotte, it had not unfrequently formed a topic of conversation. Albert was so opposed to the very idea of such an action that, with a degree of irritation unusual in him, he had more than once given Virtue to understand that he doubted the seriousness of his threats, and not only turned them into ridicule, but caused Charlotte to share his feelings of incredulity. Her heart was thus tranquilized when she felt disposed to view the melancholy subject in a serious point of view, though she never communicated to her husband the apprehension she sometimes experienced. Albert, upon his return, was received by Charlotte with ill-concealed embarrassment. He was himself out of humor, his business was unfinished, and he had just discovered that the neighboring official with whom he had to deal was an obstinate and narrow-minded personage. Many things had occurred to irritate him. He inquired whether anything had happened during his absence, and Charlotte hastily answered that Werther had been there on the evening previously. He then inquired for his letters, and was answered that several packages had been left in his study. He thereon retired, leaving Charlotte alone. The presence of the being she loved and honored produced a new impression on her heart. The recollection of his generosity, kindness, and affection had claimed her agitation. A secret impulse had calmed her agitation. A secret impulse prompted her to follow him. She took her work and went to his study, as was often her custom. He was busily employed opening and reading his letters. It seemed as if the contents of some were disagreeable. She asked some questions, he gave short answers, and sat down to write. Several hours passed in this manner, and Charlotte's feelings became more and more melancholy. She felt the extreme difficulty of explaining to her husband, under any circumstances, the weight that lay upon her heart, and her depression became every moment greater in proportion as she endeavored to hide her grief and to conceal her tears. The arrival of Verta's servant occasioned her the greatest embarrassment. He gave Albert a note, which the latter coldly handed to his wife, saying, at the same time, "'Give him the pistols.' "'I wish him a pleasant journey,' he added, turning to the servant. These words fell upon Charlotte like a thunderstroke. She, she rose from her seat, half fainting and unconscious of what she did. She walked mechanically toward the wall, took down the pistols with a trembling hand, slowly wiped the dust from them, and would have delayed longer had not Albert hastened her movements by an impatient look. She then delivered the fatal weapons to the servant without being able to utter a word. As soon as he had departed, she folded up her work and retired at once to her room, her heart overcome with the most fearful forebodings. She anticipated some dreadful calamity. She was at one moment on the point of going to her husband, throwing herself at his feet and acquainting him with all that had happened on the previous evening, that she might acknowledge her fault and explain her apprehensions. Then she saw that such a step would be useless, as she would certainly be unable to induce Albert to visit Werther. Dinner was served, and a kind friend whom she had persuaded to remain assisted to sustain the conversation, which was carried on by a sort of compulsion till the events of the morning were forgotten. When a servant brought the pistols to Werther, the latter received them with transports of delight upon hearing that Charlotte had given them to him with her own hand. 
He ate some bread, drank some wine, sent his servant to dinner, and then sat down to write as follows. They have been in your hands. You wiped the dust from them. I kissed them a thousand. You have touched. I kissed them a thousand times. You have touched them. Yes, heaven favors my design, and you, Charlotte, provide me with the fatal instruments. It was my desire to receive my death from your hands, and my wish is gratified. I have made inquiries of my servant. You trembled when you gave him the pistols, and you bade me no adieu. Wretched, wretched that I am, not one farewell. How could you shut your heart against me in that hour which makes you mine forever? Charlotte, ages cannot efface the impression. I feel you cannot hate the man who so passionately loves you. After dinner, he called his servant, desired him to finish the packing up, destroyed many papers, and then went out to pay some trifling debts. He soon returned home, then went out again, notwithstanding the rain, walked for some time in the Count's garden, and afterward proceeded farther into the country. Toward evening, he came back once more and resumed his writing. Wilhelm, I have for the last time beheld the mountains, the forests, and the sky. Farewell, and you, my dearest mother, forgive me. Console her, Wilhelm. God bless you. I have settled all my affairs. Farewell, we shall meet again and be happier than ever. I have requited you badly, Albert, but you will forgive me. I have disturbed the peace of your home. I have sowed distrust between you. Farewell, I will end all this wretchedness and all that my death may render you happy. Albert, Albert, make that angel happy and the blessing of heaven be upon you. He spent the rest of the evening in arranging his papers. He tore and burned a great many. Others he sealed up and directed to Wilhelm. They contained some detached thoughts and maxims, some of which I have perused. At ten o'clock he ordered his fire to be made up and a bottle of wine to be brought to him. He then dismissed his servant, whose room, as well as the apartments of the rest of the family, was situated in another part of the house. The servant lay down without undressing that he might be the sooner ready for his journey in the morning, his master having informed him that the post-horses would be at the door before six o'clock. Past eleven o'clock, all is silent around me and my soul is calm. I thank thee, O God, that thou bestowest strength and courage upon me in these last moments. I approach the window, my dearest of friends, and through the clouds, which are at this moment driven rapidly along by the impetuous winds, I behold the stars which illumine the eternal heavens. No, you will not fall, celestial bodies. The hand of the Almighty supports both you and me. I have looked for the last time upon the constellation of the greatest bear. It is my favorite star, for when I bade you farewell at night, Charlotte, and turned my steps from the door, it always shone upon me. With what rapture have I beheld it, beheld it at times? How often have I implored it with uplifted hands to witness my felicity, and even still? But what object is there, Charlotte, which fails to summon up your image before me? Do you not surround me on all sides, and have I not, like a child, treasured up every trifle which you have consecrated by your touch? Your profile, which was so dear to me, I return to you, and I pray you preserve it. Thousands of kisses have I imprinted upon it, and a thousand times has it gladdened my heart on departing from and returning to my home. See, 
Charlotte, I do not shudder to take the cold and fatal cup from which I shall drink the draught of death. Your hand presents it to me, and I do not tremble. All, all is now concluded. The wishes and the hopes of my existence are fulfilled. With cold, unflinching hand, I knock at the brazen portals of death. All oh, that I had enjoyed the bliss of dying for you. How gladly would I have sacrificed myself for you. Charlotte, and could I but restore peace and joy to your bosom? With what resolution, with what joy would I not meet my fate? But it is the lot of only a chosen few to shed their blood for their friends and by their death to augment a thousand times the happiness of those by whom they are beloved. I wish, Charlotte, to be buried in the dress I wear at present. It has been re it has been rendered sacred by your touch. I have begged this favor of your father. My spirits soar above my sepulchre. I do not wish my pockets to be searched. The knot of pink ribbon which you wore on your bosom the first time I saw you, surrounded by the children, oh, kiss them a thousand times for me and tell them the fate of their unhappy friend. I think I see them playing around me. The dear children, how warmly have I been attached to you, Charlotte. Since the first hour I saw you, how impossible have I found it to leave you. The ribbon must be buried with me. It was a present from you on my birthday. How confused it all appears. Little did I think that I should journey this road. But peace, I pray you, peace. They are loaded. The clock strikes twelve. I say, amen, Charlotte. Charlotte, farewell, farewell. A neighbor saw the flash and heard the report of the pistol, but as everything remained quiet, he thought no more of it. In the morning, at six o'clock, the servant went into Verta's room with a candle. He found his master stretched upon the floor, weltering in his blood and the pistols at his side. He called, he took him in his arms, but received no answer. Life was not yet quite extinct. The servant, the servant ran for a surgeon and then went to fetch Albert. Charlotte heard the ringing of the bell. A cold shudder seized her. She wakened her husband and they both rose. The servant, bathed in tears, faltered forth the dreadful news. Charlotte felt senseless at Albert's feet. When the surgeon came to the unfortunate Verger, he was still lying on the floor, and his pulse beat, but his limbs were cold. The bullet, entering the forehead, over the right eye, had penetrated the skull. A vein was opened in his right arm, and blood came, and he still continued to breathe. From the blood which flowed from the chair, it could be inferred that he had committed the rash act of sitting at his bureau, and that he afterward fell upon the floor. He was found lying on his back near the window. He was in full-dress costume. The house, the neighborhood, and the whole town were immediately in commotion. Albert arrived. They had laid Werther on the bed. His head was bound up, and the paleness of breath was upon his face. His limbs were motionless, but he still breathed, and at one time strongly, then weaker. His death was momentarily expected. He had drunk only one glass of the wine. Emilia Galotti lay open upon his bureau. I shall say nothing of Albert's distress or of Charlotte's grief. The old steward hastened to the house immediately upon hearing the news. He embraced his dying friend among, among a flood of tears. His eldest boy soon followed him on foot. I'm 
and speechless sorrow they threw themselves on their knees by the bedside and kissed his hands and face. The eldest, too, was his favorite, hung over him till he expired, and even then he was removed by force. At twelve o'clock, Werther breathed his last. The presence of the steward and the precautions he had adopted prevented a disturbance, and that night, at the hour of eleven, he caused the body to be interred in the place which Werther had selected for himself. The steward and his sons followed the corpse to the grave. Albert was unable to accompany them. Charlotte's life was despaired of. The body was carried by laborers. No priest attended. And that, my friends, brings me to the end of this great story of Die Lieden des Jungen Werther, The Sorrows of Young Werther by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. To my German friends, I hope I did okay by you with the pronunciation of the title and author. It was a pleasure to read. Thank you again, everyone, for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. And I hope you will stay tuned for more works here at this podcast. Uh, in the event you have questions or comments, you'd like to make suggestions, as always, you can write to me at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. And don't forget that you can also interact with the Q&A at the end of every episode description. Um, I ask you to please rate this podcast, whether you find it a one or five or anywhere in between, please do give it a rating. I know that there are some improvements to be made here, and I hope to be doing those kinds of things this year. So in any event, thank you again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.